All right. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Jeffrey Kane, an investigative journalist and technology writer, join us to discuss China's Turks and the perfect police state. Mr. Kane will speak for 15 minutes that open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Jeffrey Kane. Wonderful, thank you, Stacy, for having me, and it's good to be here today. Um, just to introduce myself a little more, so I am a, a, a technology writer. I was uh, formerly with uh, The Economist for many years. I was a foreign correspondent in China, uh, Turkey, and uh, Russia, and South Korea, where my specialty um, was writing about how authoritarian regimes use new forms of technology. Um, so, uh, so being based in China for all these years, I had spent many uh, I, I spent many years visiting uh, within China the region of Xinjiang, which is uh, a region of Western China that you know maybe many of you are familiar with is where um, about one tenth of the Muslim minority population, the, the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs and, and a few other ethnic groups um, are being held in a network of about 300 concentration camps. You know, these numbers, these estimates are always fluctuating, um, but uh, most recently as of about a year ago, um, the number reached its high at a, the, the estimate was around 1.8 million people. Many of them are now being uh, transferred to labor labor camps where they engage in labor and, and you know other forms of repression. But um, the the system as it uh, existed um, still is fundamentally there today. Um, so I had written my second book, The Perfect Police State, about the region of Xinjiang. Um, I had spent many years, uh, three years in Turkey in Ankara and Istanbul um, and a few other small towns interviewing the Uyghur diaspora of the country. Um, Turkey is the country that, you know, as a fellow uh, Turkic um, group uh, allows the greatest number of refugees of Uyghurs into the country. And so I spent many um, years interviewing them, gathering their stories. I couldn't do a lot of this research in China for understandable regions and, uh, for reasons. And uh, this, the, the result of this research was uh, my book, The Perfect Police State, an undercover odyssey into China's uh, terrifying surveillance dystopia of the future. Um, so um, I'm here at the Middle East Forum today because uh, this is a topic that uh, very much resonates um, with watchers and analysts of the Middle East. Um, th this is a topic that has um, perhaps more than any other um, you know, major social or political force in the world really has shaped China's relations with the Middle East and with its own Muslim um, minority. Um, you know, th there are many of these historical parallels that we can draw. So, you know, the, the Dutch were in Aceh um, in Indonesia. Um, you know, th there was a, an issue there with the Muslim minority there. You know, there's the Philippians in the South and in Mindanao. Um, there, there is a history of Islamic insurgency uh, involving hardliners um, across the, eight, the East Asian and Southeast Asian space. But what makes this particular case unique and um, alarming, uh, at least to me, is um, the novel uses of technology to profile, document, and surveil the Muslim minority. Um, so there are new systems of artificial intelligence that have been rolled out in this region. Uh, the, the Chinese government calls its, its uh, surveillance system Skynet, as in Terminator. Um, in the Chinese language, it does have a different context, um, but there is this massive uh, AI dragnet that is documenting the actions of um, pretty much every single resident of this region. Um, so basic, uh, 
you know, involvement in basic um, Islamic practices. So growing a beard, going to a mosque, being caught reading a Quran, or, you know, being caught with a Quran app on your smartphone. These are all actions that are liable in Western China to get you sent to one of these concentration camps, even if you haven't been, um, you know, convicted of a crime. Uh, what the Chinese government does is it uses a predictive policing system. So it, so the AI system will try to predict based on these actions, whether you are at risk of becoming um, a terrorist in the future or a criminal of some kind. And so they'll send you to one of these concentration camps to, um, to brainwash you, to psychologically, physically torture you, to turn you into a good patriot and to really, um, you know, do, do all these horrible things that, um, you know, that, that are designed to erase uh, Uyghur cultural and religious identity. Um, so this particular topic, uh, you know, w witnessing this firsthand um, is something that um, it, it really did um, shock me. It, it is a very new phenomenon, I think, and it did um, shock me in many ways uh, because the project that the Chinese state is undertaking um, you know, does seem to be succeeding so far in, um, you know, in creating a kind of cultural uh, and social genocide of the Uyghur and the Kazakh minorities in the country. Um, this is the largest internment of a minority since World War II. Um, and the thing that is, um, you know, different from other historical cases of Muslim insurgencies is just the extent of the repression and the success uh, with which the Chinese state is carrying uh, these policies out. Um, I, I've documented many psychological effects against the Muslim minority of China. So uh, many people who've left, who, who've escaped as refugees, um, you know, recount their, their identity undergoing this, this process of erasure and removal using this high-tech surveillance uh, the Chinese state has succeeded in creating a system in which everybody feels they are being watched, but they're not always sure when or where. There's this AI system watching them through cameras and communicating with the police, um, you know, about, uh, you know, about their whereabouts and say, you know, whether they entered the door at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. that day. Is that suspicious? Is that something abnormal? Um, this is something that, um, you know, I, I think me and other researchers have documented now in vast numbers just the extent to which um, China has uh, succeeded in ensuring that this particular group um, is culturally wiped out, that they're assimilated to the majority uh, Han Chinese um, ethnic group. Um, now that said, um, you know, I use the term cultural genocide and, uh, you know, that's a uh, that's something that um, you know is always up for discussion and debate because you know what is a cultural genocide? That term by itself, uh, you know, has its own specific um, uh, you know debate and meaning behind it. Um, but the United States and a handful of other governments, particularly in the West, um, have accused China of committing genocide in this situation in Xinjiang, and in particular, um, they point to the United Nations Genocide Convention. Uh, which states that the use of forced sterilization, which is now happening in Xinjiang, um, is one element of genocide, as well as the erasure, the attempted erasure of a cultural group through, um, you know, la language training, getting them to speak the majority language, erasing their history, erasing monuments, 
these are all pillars of what a genocide um, is under international law. And a number of, of uh, nations have taken the liberty now of, of documenting these atrocities and accusing uh, China formally of uh, genocide. Um, so one of the, um, uh, you know, I know this is an audience that's especially interested in the Middle East. And one of the things I do want to talk about briefly is the impact on um, relations between China as a, as a, as a Middle Eastern patron. Uh, China is one of the biggest um, patrons of nations uh, such as Pakistan, um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE. Um, China has made enormous inroads with its Belt and Road Initiative, which has been going on now for about, um, about nine years. It was started formally in 2013. Um, it's an estimated $1 trillion uh, mega package of infrastructure projects and aid and investment to um, various governments going through what would today, you know, what was once the historical Silk Road of Central Asia. Um, so the Belt and Road is a, um, it's a historical resurrection of this idea of Chinese greatness, um, you know, along the Central Asian corridors. But it's also a modern uh, investment project that China uses to uh, gain leverage over, um, you know, various, um, various authoritarian and, and quasi-authoritarian states in the Middle East and Central Asia and other parts of the world. One of the biggest surprises that many onlookers have had in this situation is that um, they assumed originally about five years ago when these atrocities were first coming to light that um, many uh, Middle Eastern states would condemn uh, China's treatment of the Uyghurs, perhaps would call it genocide as well, joining the US and other um, nations. But uh, the, the, quite the opposite has happened actually. Um, as a result of these uh, massive Chinese investments, um, many uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, Muslim countries, so Egypt in particular, Iran, uh, the UAE, um, Saudi Arabia, they have responded by either uh, promoting Chinese propaganda um, around the issue of the Uyghurs. So going along with the official line that this is a, a vast counterterrorism operation, or they have remained silent on the atrocities against the Uyghurs. They have, you know, often remained silent or issued, um, you know, letters through the United Nations Human Rights Council, ironically, um, you know, saying that China is just doing all it can to contain the Muslim threat in its country. That you know that these these things that are happening are just simply justified. Or Middle Eastern states um, have taken the more extreme route, and they've they've actually um, detained illegally uh, Uyghur Muslims who are Chinese citizens in their countries and deported them in mass back to China, where they've been held in concentration camps and tortured. Um, Egypt was the first offender in this case. Egypt was uh, home to one of the biggest Uyghur populations uh, outside of China. I believe it was number three or four behind the US and Turkey. Um, and many of these were um, either small business owners who had migrated or they were students who had gone to Egypt um, you know, to study at Egyptian universities. Sometimes they were studying religion and, and the Quran and so forth. Um, and in 2016 and 2017, Egypt um, was the recipient of, of uh, major Chinese aid packages in the form of security infrastructure um, you know, things like satellite development and so forth, but written within the negotiation that they had, um, you know, if you read it between the lines, it says that Egypt will help 
China with, uh, you know, security issues that it'll help in, in China's national security. And the result, the interpretation of that uh, deal was that Egypt would round up Uyghurs across the country. Um, one estimate, one recent estimate is that about 90% of the Uyghur population there, about 8,000 people have been rounded up and sent back to China, despite having legal residence permits to live in the country. Um, Egypt has remained silent on this issue, along with um, just about every other Arab Muslim regime in particular. Um, the one government that uh, remains, I would say, steadfast and firm in not giving into Chinese demands has been Turkey um, and a handful of the, the Turkic uh, Muslim states because the Uyghurs are also a fellow, uh, fellow Turkic ethnic group. Um, the Erdogan government of Turkey um, does not want to be seen as handing over, um, you know, a, a group to an authoritarian regime like China, uh, you know, when a lot of its legitimacy really rests on welcoming refugees and, and having refugees from other countries uh, in Turkey. Um, so, um, you know, this is something, um, and, you know, for the, if any of you have read the book, uh, when I originally wrote it, I was unsure whether uh, the Turkic regimes were going to hold that promise and we're going to keep the Uyghur population um, in, you know, in, in Turkey and in Azerbaijan and these Turkic governments. Uh, but the, um, I, I was proven wrong in that case. And, you know, it's been almost a year since I published the book. It was published in June of last year. Um, and it is now, uh, you know, one year later. And, you know, so far Erdogan, despite his flaws and, and criticisms, uh, I do have to give him, you know, credit for upholding, um, upholding his side of things on this uh, Uyghur situation. And there are many geopolitical and economic reasons for Turkey in particular standing up um, against uh, China. So Turkey is a competitor, an economic competitor in the construction industry, which is an enormous industry in both Turkey and China. Um, you know, Turkey is one of, it's, it's perhaps the geopolitical terminus of the Eurasian uh, region that leads into uh, Europe and Turkey does not want to simply give up its strategic position to, you know, to Chinese money, Chinese investments. It wants to hold firm and maintain its own um, its own uh, influence around the region. Its own, I guess, neo-Ottoman influence is the term that many would use. Um, and so, as a result, um, you know, Turkey is still the land of Uyghur refugees. The last estimate I saw is that there were about fifty thousand uh, Uyghurs living in Istanbul alone, um, and this is mainly in the some of the outer neighborhoods. I spent a lot of time there interviewing them. Um, and uh, it's just, it's good to see. Um, so anyway, so th this is just, uh, I, I, we're at 15 minutes now, and this is just to sum up the work that I've done, um, some of the, the work and the, the impact on uh, Middle Eastern Chinese relations when it comes to the Uyghur situation. And I will open the floor um, to questions for anyone who has them. All right, thank you so much. So the first question we have is from David. Other than accepting refugees, what is the Turkish government doing and saying about the persecution of its fellow Turks in China? Turkey is the only um, Middle Eastern Muslim government, to my knowledge so far, that has um, publicly spoken out against China on this issue. Um, it, this began in about 2019. Uh, the, United the United Nations Human Rights Council ironically of all bodies that should be talking about this, 
Um, so, so the members, some of the, the South American, African, and Middle Eastern members of that body issued a joint letter um, that defended China's actions against the Uyghurs. But around that same time, the Turkish foreign minister um, and various other government officials since then have actively said publicly that um, the way China treats the Uyghurs is unacceptable, that it's a major human rights violation, and that something needs to be done about it. Um, so um, Turkey has been pretty active on this topic. Uh, I, I don't think, um, you know, looking in the big picture of, you know, Turkey's strategic needs and, and directions, I don't think the Uyghur situation really fits in, um, you know, to like to a major priority. Uh, it, it's not, it's, it's the kind of thing, it's the kind of situation where, you know, tactically, if Erdogan were to order the Uyghurs to be sent back to China, um, it would it would do political damage to him, but he doesn't really uh, like the, the situation remains neutral as long as they remain in Turkey. Um, there's more damage that can be done by sending them back. Um, so a lot of the Uyghurs who I know in Turkey, and I, I've you know I know hundreds of them now. This is it's been my base for a long time. They originally feared that Turkey was going to send them back, and they were en route to getting. Um, you know, visas to Europe. They're trying to move to Sweden and, and Germany and the, these European countries that open their doors to refugees. But upon seeing that Turkey um, was proving relatively safe for them, they've mostly settled down and they feel comfortable um, in Turkey. I think one of the few refugee groups that is actually staying there and not moving on to Europe, interestingly. That is interesting. Um, an anonymous attendee does follow up on that, asking, is there any fear of uh, Turkey sending them as fighters to Syria? Um, so officially, the Turkish government has denied any involvement in that. Um, but I, you know, being in the field, I have found some limited um, evidence that perhaps um, six to seven years ago, um, Turkey was perhaps tacitly sending some fire, fighters to Syria, um, perhaps, and, and uh, I, I can't be super conclusive about this because it's still, I've done research on this, it's still a very murky topic and it's not totally clear who, who has sent them. Um, it, it seems more likely that the Turkish government has, you know, turned a blind eye and has allowed Uyghur fighters to go to Syria on their own without, you know, punishing them, without holding them to some kind of Turkish law. Um, the, um, so the, the major group, the, the Uyghur group that was fighting, that has been fighting in Syria um, in relatively small numbers was the ETIM, the, er the East Turkestan Islamic Party, uh, and another one called the TIP, the, the Turkestan Islamic Party. Um, so these groups, they, they rose to prominence um, in the media after the 9-11 attacks, but their presence was always quite limited. They had some operations in Afghanistan. Um, they, they later had people operating in Syria, but um, a lot of this has not been published because it's not something that I think the media at large has been focused on as much, but I, I have had my own contacts among them in Syria and I've occasionally checked in um, to see how things are going. And what they report is that it's heavy losses. A lot of them have you know, gone back, gone back to Turkey. They've they've abandoned the fight. Um, it's not really the, the idea originally was that they were going to uh, get trained in Syria and Afghanistan, and with that training, they could go back and wage a jihad uh, in Western China, try to create a breakaway state called East Turkestan 
um, and that would be the Uyghur uh, nation, the, the independence movement. It never really happened. Um, the Chinese state, to be totally uh, forthright, is absolutely all-powerful, all-seeing. It's, it's the world's largest authoritarian regime. It's mastered um, you know, a mixture of these technologies and also police and military tactics against uh, Uyghurs who are suspects. Um, and there's just simply no way at all that you know any ISIS-connected fighter in Syria is going to stand a chance. Also, the 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 you know ever since the U.S. left Afghanistan, the geopolitics of the region um, have shifted. The Taliban are now allies with China. Um, many uh, former terrorist groups, so um, various ISIS figures and and other figures, have publicly said that they do not want to wage a war on China. That the focus must remain on the West. Um, China is a potential benefactor, potential ally. It doesn't really care as much about, you know, human rights and, and these things. And, you know, ironically, despite oppressing a Muslim group in the country, um, China does a lot to support the Taliban and support, you know, fundamentalist Islamic groups around the world. Thank you. Uh, Jaya Pride asks, is this technology used throughout China or only in Xinjiang? Xinjiang was the testing ground. And since I, ever since I began writing the book, it has slowly been rolled out across China um, against the general population. So uh, it began in Xinjiang in late 2016. So the region of Xinjiang was already um, you know, under lockdown. It was already an oppressed place. But this was where um, the government began experimenting with these new technologies like facial recognition, AI surveillance and so forth. Um, from Xinjiang, it began spreading to other minority regions. So Tibet um, is another big example. Um, Tibet is one that you know I think the global community tends to forget about these days, but it is just as repressed, if not more, than Xinjiang still. Um, and it's a, it's a Buddhist state. Um, also Inner Mongolia. Um, so Inner Mongolia is a region that um, borders Mongolia. It's, it, it has a Mongol minority. Uh, it's resource rich, mineral rich. And uh, this is another region that has had separatist movements in the past. And so the Chinese government has rolled it out there too. Um, so these surveillance systems, they are strongest in, in minority regions, particularly in the Western, kind of Northwest and Western sphere of China. Um, but when it comes to the general population, they're still being deployed. It's just that they're not as harsh. Um, you know, like like people are people in Beijing and Shanghai for the most part are not being sent to concentration camps, um, labor camps, and so forth. Uh, Shanghai has been on a major lockdown. It's been in the news. Everyone's been ordered to stay home. Uh, you know, and it's like COVID's finished, and it's it's been this massive um, lock, this incredible lockdown where like no one can go out at all, and there are drones. You know, surveilling people, making sure that they're staying at home. But I would say that level of repression is the closest that major Chinese cities have come to what's happening in Xinjiang, which is far more extreme. Thank you so much for that. Stephen Orlo asks, is there any organized resistance among the Uyghurs, internal or external, to the Chinese opposition, oppression? I have found no evidence that there is an organized internal uh, resistance among the Uyghurs. Um, anything, if that ever did exist, um, it was not very well organized and it was easily crushed by the Chinese state. Um, I, I mean, you know, you, you just have to imagine um, 
what Xinjiang is like today. It's like if you arrive there and, you know, most foreigners can't go there right now post pandemic. It is just uh, when I was there, it was a an absolute science fiction novel. It was um, you know, George Orwell in the flesh. And it was like, uh, you know, Tom Cruise in Minority Report. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Um, it's about a police force that, that, that attempts to predict murders in the future. And then they arrest people, you know, based on those predictions. It's called pre, the pre-crime unit. Um, this is literally what was happening in Xinjiang. They were arresting people for pre-crimes. Like you're going to be a terrorist in three weeks. That's what the computer system says. So you have to come with us, sir. Um, in that kind of setting, um, it's just, it's extremely unlikely that any kind of organized resistance can flourish. I, ha I have heard rumors here and there, but um, I have, you know, through the Uyghur community, I I've heard rumors, but nothing that would substantiate it, I mean, at all. Um, there is, there is some organized resistance outside of Xinjiang. There are various peaceful groups. Um, so Human Rights Project. These are groups that are involved in documenting um, the human rights abuses. Um, there has been talk of perhaps setting up a Uyghur in exile government that would, you know, in theory, lead East Turkestan if, if it were ever to become an independent state. Um, but other than that, there isn't really a, um, a formalized resistance group that really stands a chance of, of changing the situation right now. Thank you. So an anonymous attendee asks, China's response to your allegations would be that unlike other groups, Islam's history clearly demonstrates a supremacist ideology. Uh, therefore, when the Chinese say they have a genuine realistic fear of Islam, uh, is that true, especially with them funding other uh, Middle Eastern countries? And can you comment on this? Oh, uh, yeah. So that is that has been China's response um, to various reports put forward by United Nations bodies by the United States and uh, you know various other governments, the UK. Um, this is a common line that the Chinese government takes. Um, so yes, I mean it, it is true that there was a fundamentalist um, Islamic threat in China um, that was tied with uh, separatist nationalism. It was a mixture of the East Turkestan uh, movement to create an independent nation with um, a group of extremist Muslims who wanted to uh, make that happen. They wanted to create a Central Asian uh, caliphate, essentially. Um, but um, that threat, uh, it, you know, it for, for the, uh, for the um, amount of repression that the government there has unleashed against the minority, um, it is uh, completely um, disproportionate to the actual threat. Um, so the numbers that I had when I was um, gathering data on the Syrian fighters, for example, um, the, the best number that I could locate was there were about 161 Uyghur fighters in Syria. Um, and my estimate now is that about one quarter of them have died on the battlefield. Um, that is not uh, a threat. Um, you know, that does not justify putting 1.8 million people in concentration camps, the biggest internment uh, since World War II of an ethnic minority. Um, you know, like to take China's line on this and to argue in defense of China, uh, it, it would require some very serious intellectual gymnastics that would be akin to defending, um, you know, fascistic Chinese authoritarianism. I mean, if you can make a defense, and, and I know it's controversial often to incite, to invoke Hitler or Stalin, these horrible leaders, um, but to defend Xi Jinping and to defend his policies today, would come very close to um, you know, trying to set up a defense of Hitler and what he did in the 20th century.
Absolutely. Uh, Rick Kaminer asks, sorry if I butchered that, uh, it appears that China does not care what the world's opinion is. Uh, can any country influence China to curtail these genocide practices? And if so, what is the approximate response to China? So China does not care what the world thinks about um, the treatment of the Uyghurs. I think they've shown that they're going to they're going to continue doing what they do because it's very deeply set in their policy. And it's also kind of it's set within the Communist Party's um, historical view of where it stands in the world. I mean, it, if you're in China and you're a top Communist Party leader, this kind of thing makes logical sense to you if you're you know absorbing Chinese media all the time and you live within this blanket of censorship and you know you don't quite see what's going on in Xinjiang. Um, so the um, so the thing about um, the Chinese response, um, so Chinese officials and Chinese state media, they get extremely angry and defensive and they have these um, public flip outs whenever there are stronger sanctions applied to top officials and state owned um, entities. So we have seen um, that China does suffer economically under sanctions because a lot of the groups that have been involved in repressing the Uyghurs and just repressing democracy, liberalism in general, um, have been sanctioned by various governments, US, uh, UK, EU, so forth. Um, and uh, the Chinese government does, like, they, they, like the, the public record shows that they really, um, they do deeply care about that because uh, these companies are deeply tied to supply chains with the outside world. They're deeply tied into the, you know, the supply chains for key technological sectors such as semiconductors, displays, smartphones, also garments, and so forth. And when they are sanctioned, um, the Chinese government does hurt, and actual officials in the party um, do suffer. They do become poorer as a result of these kinds of actions. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, before we go, can you please let our viewers know where to find some more of your work and to where to buy these uh, books of yours? Certainly. So you can um, go to my website, jeffreykane.net. My name is spelled G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-C-A-I-N.net. I'm also on Twitter. Um, it's my name, Jeffrey underscore Kane. And uh, yeah, I'm, it's at, my books are all, at, they're on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. If you want, you can also check out my recent interview with President Zelensky of Ukraine. It's in Wired Magazine. Just go to Google and type my name in Zelensky and it'll pop right up. It was just published last week. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. Kane, for joining us today. Thank you, everyone. And for our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for an update with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks.